Hello, fam, love and salutations, good people. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Slow Wealth Podcast and stream today. We are Kendra. And Ramon. And as we have with our previous shows, we always start with a powerful motivational quote. And it starts by saying, success does not come from what you do occasionally. It comes from what you do consistently. Boom. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. It was. It is. So, you know, you just got to make habits, temporary habits into permanent solutions. All so, right. And today, who we got, who we got today? today we have our interview with Devon, the accountant. Do you want to tell people where you work? Is that okay? Or yeah, yeah, okay. Um, with Bland and Associates, is that right? Yes. With yep. Bland and Associates Accounting Firm in Omaha, Nebraska. This is my little baby brother, so I'm so proud today. <laughs> I am. I am so proud today. I'm like ecstatic. And um, Devon, so how are you feeling today? I'm okay. It's a nice, nice uh, Sunday here in Omaha. You know, got to get out with the dogs and, you know, hang out, enjoy some of this nice weather. All right. You do that. You do that. That was a brother so cute. <laughs> okay. So um, we are going to just kind of go through this interview by letting you kind of take the lead. Um, we will ask some questions here and there a little bit about what you do and advice that you could give people about, um, you know, their taxes and what an accountant does, you know, mm -hmm. just preliminary stuff like that. You know? Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So um, just to start, just tell us about a little bit about what you do. Um, it's, this is your time. Okay. So like Kendra said, my name is Devon. I am an accountant at Bland and Associates, a senior accountant. Um, I am not a CPA quite yet, um, going through the eligibility process for that. I've been working with Bland for going on 10 years now. Um, been on the tax team for roughly seven, eight years. Um, and I love it. I love the people I work with. Um, I love the client interactions. Um, and just helping people overall manage, you know, their tax situations because it's a very complicated system that not a lot of people, a lot of people know about, but they don't understand. So it's helpful to have someone there to kind of guide you through it and tell you the do's and don'ts of the situation. Um, so, yeah, I, I love it. I love um, the work that I do. Uh, and it's just, you know, tax returns as well as consulting in the off season of, you know, people want to buy a building or buy a new car and, you know, talking them through what they should do. Cause it's always, it's always best to involve your accountant before you do something rather than after. Cause if you do after, then you might've missed a step that cost you thousands of dollars of deductions. You want to bring them in before and let them know what you're going to do so that they can help you um, maximize the tax benefits of whatever venture you're going to do. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta love accounting, boy. Man, <laughs> right. Amazing, I ain't got that paper. <laughs> so tell us about you, not what you do. Yeah. You. Uh, so I'm just a um, 
you know, Kendra probably didn't fit into this uh, mold even when she was growing up, but I'm the classic Midwesterner, you know, not, uh, not really into big cities or anything like that. I've done a lot of traveling to places like Portland, Chicago, um, you know, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty much a homebody. I like to hang out with my dogs and my fiance. Um, we're going to get married here in October. So that's pretty exciting. Um, Sorry to hear that, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. I'm I'm excited for it. That's um, good. That's good. But yeah, just like hanging out, hanging out with friends, you know, um, getting outside, hiking. Um, haven't really gotten to the camping scene, um, but you know, as time goes on, I would really love to start like camping and possibly hunting and stuff like that. Uh, but that kind of just says what kind of things I like to do. I also play a lot of video games in my spare time, but, um, yeah, that's pretty much, that's pretty much me. Just, uh, I was just like hanging out pretty relaxed and not trying to do too much. Oh, Man. my little country brother. He <laughs> <laughs> yeah. loaded up with the pistols back there. I got you, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's so great. So, Talk to us about how long you've been an accountant and how you got started. So I've been with Bland basically my entire career. Um, I started with Bland out of high school, basically in the admin department, you know, doing the standard scanning, shredding, all the all the little small things um, that you could trust a high schooler to do. Uh, then I went to the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Um, I was originally before I met, got to Bland, I was originally going to go pre-med. That was basically my plan. But then, you know, weighing the options of, you know, going to college and then medical school versus just going to do my undergraduate for business with a concentration in accounting, you know, four years versus eight years of school and, you know, pretty good money straight out the gate. So that's really what drove me to uh, be in accounting and, and just the aspect of, having that client interaction of, you know, talking to people and people, um, you know, involving you not only in their businesses, but in their lives, you know, it's like you develop kind of a, a personable friendship, friendship slash uh, business relationship of, you know, they invite you to come hang out with, you know, their friends who are also business people and you get to, uh, expose yourself to a bunch of different industries like marketing and real estate and um, even like things like manufacturing, because you're going to meet these people and they're experts in their own fields, but you're, you know, listening to them talk about their own fields. So it's a lot of exposure and I'm I'm a huge people person. I love, you know, uh, going out and meeting new people. Um, Obviously it's nerve wracking for everybody, but you know, it's kind of one of the things that I really enjoy doing. in my job. That's good, man. Cause you know what, it's, it's, a lot of times, like you say, it's, it's not about what you know, it's who you know. So, yep. you know, those different people, and they expose you some some things that most people wouldn't know about, unless right. they, you know, uh, was in your industry. So yeah, everybody needs an accountant. <laughs> you, know what I'm saying? You, you that guy, they like, hey, how can I save some money? Yep. There's, there's <laughs> three constants. Money. Three constants, life, death, and taxes. 
We got to deal with all of them. <laughs> all right. So, hey, man, let's get into it, man. You know, because we really want to uh, make this interview obviously based on taxes mm-hmm. and uh, really get people insight to that and and the do's and don'ts and, you know, how we can save money, how we can actually make taxes work for us, right? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people, you know, IRS is like the boogeyman, you know. Yeah. Away from them, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Uh, won't you tell us, like, uh, what you think the relationship between an accountant and your client should be? You know, so the, the relationships that are, are very beneficial overall are the relationships where it's not just I come to you, get my taxes done, and then, you know, and then I don't talk to you for another year until until it's done. Obviously, if you are someone who is just a W-2 employee with, you know, you don't you don't have any businesses or rentals or things like that, you know, that kind of relationship can work. You know, you just mm-hmm. only need them to file your taxes and then, you know, but if you're doing things like investing in stocks and things like that, investing in real estate, have, have businesses. Those are the times where you want to have a more um, continuous relationship with your accountant as well as a, as, as well as a positive one. You know, you want it to be someone who you mesh with not only professionally, but personally, because, mm-hmm. because, you know, it's, it's not going to be a fulfilling partnership if you don't, if you don't, you know, mesh well with them because they're going to offer you suggestions of you should do this, you should do that. But if you don't mesh with them or you don't trust their judgment, then you're not going to, you know, take advantage of their, um, of their suggestions. So it's always best to have someone you you mesh well with personally who you could even, you don't have to go out and have a beer with them, but you could have a personal conversation about, you know, Hey, how's the family? How's the kids, you know, uh, really amicable as well as have that trust of they have your best um, intentions at heart and the fact that they, they know your situation, you know, inside and out um, so that they can make the best educated decision because accounting is a spectrum of, you know, what you do know, what you don't know. So you might be getting a suggestion from an accountant who doesn't know about a whole other side of a situation. You know, they're giving you a suggestion specifically with what they know. But if they if they don't have the full picture, then they can't give you a, a quality suggestion. So it's always best to have someone you feel comfortable with talking to on a consistent basis and um, and establishing that rapport. Okay, so they should be closer than your than your girlfriend. What? <laughs> <laughs> you you gotta let them know where all the money is hidden. Man, hey, well, you gotta do what you gotta do. Right. <laughs> so, all right. So, this is probably a good question. So, like, when you have the influx of people from out of town moving to cities, especially with COVID, right? So, you got a lot of people moving from you know, uh, California to the Midwest, or you know, New York, you know, the East mm-hmm. Coast to other cities. Right, and they're working remotely. I think one of the questions people have is, do they keep that same accountant that they had where they were living, mm-hmm. or now where they're going? So some people think you have to have an accountant where you live. So like, is that true, or 
can you use an accountant and keep that same accountant, you know, where you used to live? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have a, a lot of clients who are all across the, the United States. Um, some that have come that have started in Bland at all. If they lived in Omaha for a period of time and then they moved out and they stayed with us or people who've been, who live in another state who just reach out to us for, you know, whatever reason, maybe they have a, a business that operates mainly in Nebraska or something like that. But it's, um, it's kind of up to, up to the person who's has the, um, who has the tax return that needs to be filed because a lot of state states are very different in terms of what their tax returns look like, what their instructions are, you know, what you can, which you can adjust versus what you can't. But a lot of that is, um, you know, some of it is, you know, expertise, but a lot of it is just software. So when you do, if you do have that rapport with your accountant um, and you, and you really like them and they do great work for you, but you have a new opportunity somewhere else, you know, it's 2021 modern technology has made communicating so much easier. You can, you know, scan and upload your documents. You can email everything, you know, there's encrypted portals and all these extra pieces or softwares that you can use to communicate effectively. Um, and at the same time be, you know, thousands of miles away. So it is definitely, um, easier now than it was, you know, 20 years ago for, you know, moving out of state and, you know, trying to stay in touch with your current accountants. Uh, but if you do have that rapport, you know, you can get past all of the differences in the states and stuff like that. Uh, but so you don't need to find an accountant in your state in order to um, successfully file a tax return. If you have a good rapport with your current accountant and you move, definitely keep in touch with them. Um, and they'll, you know, be more than likely uh, excited that you stayed with them and work hard to keep you and um, make sure your tax return is updated the way it's supposed to be. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's well, that's, no. well, nobody want to owe taxes, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the main thing I don't want to owe. Yeah. And um, do you suggest, well, I guess I should say this. How should people prepare for tax season? Uh, preparation comes in a lot of different forms. Um, you know, I have accountants who do everything from, you know, gathering up every receipt that they've ever had for that year or what about the shoebox. Yep. In a shoebox. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> and you'd be, you'd be surprised at how often that happens. I've, we actually have a, um, an elderly client I love her to death, but, um, so she, her husband used to do all the tax stuff, you know, get all the documents ready and things like that. Uh, but then a few years ago, he had passed away. Um, and so she obviously was out of touch with all of that. She didn't know anything about the taxes. So she would come with like trash bags full of documents and, you know, bring those in because she's like, my husband took care of everything. I'll pay the bill for whatever, you know, you have to do to get through all the documents. Like that's not a problem, but I just don't personally know what you need versus what you don't. So I just brought everything. Um, trash bag. Yeah. It's, and it's, and it's, you know, it happens you know, because, you know, usually one person in the family, you know, the husband or the wife, um, you know, is the one who does the taxes or, you know, works with the accountant to get the taxes filed. And the other person really isn't involved, which is 
you know, really common, but, you know, you always want to know kind of baseline of what's going on. But um, yeah, so it's, to answer your question, it's a, a variety of things. What usually happens is if they have a business or if they're personal, they just gather all their documents, you know, whether they're electronic, like your W-2s and your 1099s and all that stuff, they gather them all up and then they just, you know, give them to the accountant. That's kind of how you prepare for it. Um, you definitely want to be in the know of what documents you are going to receive because, you know, if it's something completely new, you you might not be on the lookout for it. Um, and things come at varying times. You know, you could get something in January and then you can get something all the way in March. So it's definitely powerful to know exactly what documents you are supposed to receive. That way you can have like a checklist of, okay, I have this, 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 you know, that way your accountant doesn't accidentally file your return without a piece of information that you just haven't received yet. Cause that is very common when people invest in a business, which is why in the beginning I said, you want to involve your accountant because, you know, something happens or you get a document you're like, Oh yeah, I did invest in a business, you know, in, in June, you know, and then your accountant didn't know that. So they filed your taxes because you didn't receive your K one for the business yet because the business wasn't done yet. So that's another um, thing, but generally at least our firm, I don't know about many other firms. I know mid-sized firms to large firms do this. There's called a client organizer, which is basically a general, um, checklist of here's the things that we received last year. Are we going to receive things this year? Here's a questionnaire for you to fill out, you know, just to get the conversation going so that we can, you know, work together to figure out, okay, do we have all the information? Um, so yeah, so little helpful things like that of just making sure that you have all your documents or, you know, what you're going to receive and filling out or requesting a client organizer from your accountant is definitely helpful for getting prepared for the tax season. What's a K-1 form? That's a good question. Not a lot of people uh, know about that. So when you have, when you have a business, that's a flow through entity. Um, so what a flow through entity means is that the business itself doesn't pay taxes. The, the income is reported on the business return and then it produces what's called a form K-1 or schedule K-1. And then you give that, that K-1 to the partners. Each partner gets their own individual K-1. And what it does is it just splits the business's information into chunks of percentages. So if I own 10% of the business, I report 10% of the income. If someone else owns 50%, they report 50%. So each of us get an individual K-1 that shows exactly how much income we are responsible for. Now, how does that work if you're like a married couple? Is it still 50-50 or is it? Yeah. So you you still get you still get two separate K-1s. Um, but you know, the, the K-1s get put on the same tax return. Um, so you could, you know, if you if I don't know, it's not possible to, but if ideally you had one K one versus two K ones, it wouldn't matter in terms of in terms of money. Like they would be they would end with the same result. It's just the formality of having the two separate K-1s representing the two partners of a firm or of a business is how that works. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. A lot of yeah. people probably don't know that, especially for this year, because you have so many people starting businesses. 
Mm-hmm. This is a side that they don't know. They just like, man, I, I, I did an LLC. I, I got my EIN number, you know. Yeah, yeah that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, they don't know, like, the ins and outs of how to file it, you know. Which comes to our next question. When when do you say, because we all know that normally taxes, is, you have to file by April 15th. Mm-hmm. I think this year and last year they extended that because of COVID. Yep. But um, like you said, being able to or needing to stay in contact with your accountant year round, when would you say is, is really the best time to file taxes? Is it like in April, right before the deadline or, you know, February? Mm-hmm. When would you say? Yeah. So it's 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 dependent on obviously the accountant and the workload. Um, you know, I have <clears throat> accounts with you know, I do their personal return as well as they have like six or seven separate businesses, you know, so they're obviously, their tax situation is a lot more complicated. Therefore, you want to give your accountant more time to fully absorb everything um, because in my opinion, a good accountant isn't someone who, you know, just takes your numbers and, you know, throws them onto a tax turn, right? That, That could take me 15 minutes to do. I could take your numbers and just throw them on a tax return and then prepare it. But, you know, someone who I feel is a good accountant is someone who looks through your financials, looks through what's called your general ledger, which shows all of your activity, you know, and they might have to pull out some stuff that is personal. um, But they also might find some things that are just like, hey, I see you spend X amount of dollars a month. You know, is this something that we can you know, negotiate down because, you know, you've had this vendor for the past 20 years. Um, maybe you can negotiate a price to, you know, pay less per month because you're a loyal customer or, you know, things like that, where um, you just, cause you can, you can learn a lot about a business um, and, and you can learn a lot about people and their tax documents. Um, but it's definitely, um, you know, a time consuming process a, a business return can take anywhere from, you know, 45 minutes to 30 hours, depending on how complicated it is, especially when you start involving multi-state um, entities. But yeah, like I said, it, 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 just, it just depends on how complicated your tax situation is, but there's always the extension that, sh- that can be filed. Um, we at our firm do not charge to file an extension. Um, and there's a, a lot of negative misconceptions of an extension and I don't, I don't exactly know where they come from. Um, because a lot of clients say, I don't want to file an extension. I want it done by April 15th and, and you, there really, there's no penalty. Like you could file an extension and file it April 30th. And there's really no difference between filing it April 15th versus April 30th. Um, but it just gives your accountant more time as well as, the taxpayer more time to get all the information in because there are some forms that you might not receive until May, um, especially with COVID. So you can't file an incomplete tax return. Um, the only the only stipulation is that, which a lot of people probably don't know, is that, and this is kind of a counterintuitive way to set it up, but if you owe money you know, on your tax return, you have to have that paid by April 15th regardless of if your return is ready to file or not. Now, the caveat is, how do you know what you're going to owe if you don't know what's, you know, coming? You can't, you don't know what you don't know. 
So, you know, it's, it's trying to figure out how much money you need to pay in by April 15th, um, you know, to get that extension, you know, and the extension doesn't require a payment, but it, if you pay while you, before you extend, then it eliminates what's called a failure to pay penalty, which um, it could be probably about 5% um, of whatever you owe in addition to interest for every day that you're late. Um, but the interest is very minimal. Um, but yeah, so definitely filing or getting your return in the door early, even if it's not everything, you know, especially if you expect that you're going to need to extend, you want to get it, you know, in as soon as possible, especially for businesses, get your financials updated up to date as soon as possible after the year end. You know, a lot of people wait until December 31st to start entering all their December activity and that rolls over into January and then they get backed up. So you definitely want to get all your ducks in a row um, before the end of the year. That way, you know, you can do those last minute tweaks when, it, when January hits and then go from there. So you said something, I just want to ask real quick. So you said like, there's no penalty really to extend your taxes, but if you owe, mm-hmm. They're going to hit you with that failure to uh, pay. Yeah. Um, from the due the deadline of April fifteenth until whenever that is. Mm-hmm. That if you pay ahead of time, you won't get hit with that failure to pay. Mm-hmm. Is there a minimum? Can I like say, all right, here I give you a hundred bucks. Get them a hundred bucks, and then yeah. Yeah. So how does that work? Yeah. So there's a couple different penalties at play um, when you when you file your tax return, right? So if you file your tax return before you know before the deadline, right? And let's say you don't pay anything but you owe, there's um, what's called the underpayment penalty, which is another kind of counterintuitive system of um, you might not have owed in the past, but you should have known you owed this year. Is kind of how it's set up. Um, but you don't, obviously, like I said, you don't know what you don't know. So you might not know that, you know, this $30,000 that you received from a business investment was taxable or something like that. Um, and if you, if you didn't pay in and you owe, they're going to assess an underpayment penalty because you owed a certain amount above last year. And they're going to do, do the math to see how much the penalty is. Um, I do not know what the penalty is off the top of my head, percentage wise, it's probably somewhere in the same ballpark as the failure to failure to pay penalty. Um, and that one also um, has an assessed interest rate as well. Uh, so there's the failure to pay penalty, which like I said, if you don't pay before April 15th, that gets tacked onto your tax bill. Underpayment penalty gets tacked onto your tax bill um, as well as the interest. So, if you file after April 15 and you owe, you could possibly have two separate penalties in addition to interest added on to your tax bill. Damn. Yeah. And so, they so if you be messing around. Yeah. Wow. So, so to answer Ramon's question, if you, if you do pay that hundred dollars, but then it turns out you owe, you know, 5,000, you might avoid the failure to pay penalty, but you're going to get hit with the underpayment penalty. Because you didn't pay up to that full five thousand, so and which so, one carries a higher penalty—the underpay or the file to pay? The failure to pay. 
Uh, that I do not know off the top of my head. I would assume the failure to the failure to pay penalty in my experience has always been higher. Um, just judging by you know what I've seen in the software. Um, you know, like I said, I don't have the um, the exact rates um, memorized, but yeah, the failure to pay penalty is is likely more hot or higher than the underpayment penalty. Yeah, you know, there's gonna be some folks that won't gonna know that. They like, all right, look, <laughs> yeah. I'll pay a hundred dollars. You know what I'm saying? Right, <laughs> you know? I'll pay a hundred dollars. I want to make sure that I get no penalties. How about yeah. that? <laughs> hey, for real, we try to find trying to find the loopholes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Anybody watching this, make sure you pay, you know, a hundred dollars. It's out on that <laughs> that fair to pay, but you still gonna get it with the underpay. You know? <laughs> That's true. You know, so, hey, we just don't want to, you know, want to decrease those expenses. So. And that's why you need a relationship with your accountant, right, Devon? Yeah, because I can, um, like I said, it, it's software. It's all software driven um, in this industry. You know, 20 years ago, it was all manual filling out documents by hand and stuff like that. But now it's all software driven. So you could tell me, you know, estimates of I think this is going to be this much. I think this is going to be this much. I can plug it in calculate how much you know i project you owe mm -hmm. but you know it's obviously not going to be anywhere near accurate because i don't have the exact information but you know it's it's the underpayment penalty is basically taking the difference between how much you paid versus how much you owed and then you know penalizing the difference between the two numbers so if we get closer to that number that you owe then that will ultimately help limit the underpayment penalty or even, you know, get you closer to a refund, which a lot of people um, really like refunds, but, you know, you in, in tax in tax, you know, intro to in intro to individual tax in college, they, you know, explained tax refunds of you are, let's say you get a $5,000 refund that you, the government has held onto your money for an entire year and then gave it back to you with no interest. You could have taken that 5,000 and invested it or, you know, bought something that you really wanted, you know, over, you, you have that $5,000 over time rather than one big chunk, but you could do something more productive with it rather than letting it sit with the government. So you always want, in my opinion, um, and by the way, these are all my expressed well, opinions. Let me say uh, what they said in that movie, Message. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Disclaimer: This is not you know, professional paid, you know, advice. You know, take this all with a with a grain of salt. You always want to consult your accountant with anything that you hear, anything that you read, anything that you see, because they will ultimately be able to tell you if it is good for your situation. Um, so now that we got that disclaimer out of the way, um, in my opinion, I prefer to. Um, either get a very small refund or maybe owe a little bit at the end of the year. You know, I don't want to owe a couple thousand, but, you know, maybe a couple hundred bucks, you know, because that would tell me that I've basically maximized every dollar that I've earned. I've been able to keep it in my pocket um, throughout the full year. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than getting a you know, a couple thousand dollar refund and you're like, wow, I, if I would have had that couple thousand dollars throughout the year, then maybe I could have gone on that vacation. I could have gone and hung out with friends, um, you know, rather than kind of pinching pennies and stuff like that. So it's definitely better to get a smaller refund or owe a little bit 
and get to that line rather than, you know, being, being on complete opposite sides of the spectrum of that line. You're going to have everybody messing around with their W-2 form. Yeah. <laughs> and they're going to be trying to figure hey. out, okay, so if this week, if I claim zero, this yeah. week, if I claim nine or exempt or whatever. Yeah, and it's and it's crazy because they they recently changed the W-2, W-4 is what it's called. The W-4 is what you oh, saw at the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and they changed that, you know, before, yeah, you used to claim zero or one or whatever. Now they're just like, how much money do you make a year? And then it's just like, okay, now take that number divided by this number. And then how many kids do you have? Okay. Multiply this 2000 number. And it's just like, it's just like, I just want, I just want to claim zero or one, like mm-hmm. that's the simple way. But now you actually have to write in like thousands of dollars and it'll be like, okay, here's how much you should have withheld. And it's supposed to make it more accurate, but you know, that remains to be seen over time to see if people actually, because it's, it's meant to get you closer to that line so that you don't have these huge refunds or don't owe a lot. But, you know, we'll have to see how effective it actually is. Oh, wow. So they're making the whole process in paperwork. It's like they're just sending it off to the, well, basically, if you look like it, the consumer. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they have to figure out, okay, if I am honest, <laughs> I'll put in my actual yearly salary yep. to make sure that, you know, enough taxes are deducted so I won't owe at the end of the year. And just kind of going into that for businesses. Now, this is what we were told for mm-hmm. businesses. You almost want to owe taxes because it might look better um to potential clients or whomever mm-hmm. if you earned a certain amount of revenue am i am i explaining that right Ramon? yeah okay yeah they, yeah they tell us that you, you better to owe so like if you have a business you at least want to show that you you you're getting income but mm-hmm. if you're taking a lot of deductions then it, it decreases what you're actually making in a sense right it looks like the business is not making money mm-hmm so yeah, that's a that's a common narrative um, that you that you hear a lot as an accountant, and it and it's t- it's true to some degree, right? So what I mean by that is there is a difference between what you report on your business financials versus what you report on your tax return, and that that probably sounds kind of devious or whatever, but, mm-hmm. but like when you, when you really think about it, so. Let's say I buy a you know fifty thousand dollar piece of equipment, right? And I pay monthly on it. Um, and you know I have interest, but I also have the depreciation of that piece of equipment. So if I'm allowed to take the full depreciation in that year, you know my profit and loss is going to show that I'm you know negative or I, I lost money this year. But in all actuality, it's just the fact that depreciation is there. You know, I'm getting a $50,000 expense in one year. Obviously, that's going to drive my profit way down. But, you know, any um, competent banker and stuff knows what how depreciation works. So they would just add that back to the bottom line to actually figure out how much profit you actually had. So your business financials will show, you know, a loss. But in all actuality, you probably made a profit, but you just had the preferential bonus depreciation um, that allowed you to take that loss while at the same time, cash-wise, making a profit. Um, 
but yeah, and that and that's just one of the many um, differences that you can have. Uh, things like an accrual to cash adjustment, um, other things that you know are, are basically timing differences. It doesn't really represent what cash you made. It just represents you know when it when it's reported um, is how it's basically described. So you can you can still have a very profitable business, but not owe any taxes. Um, so yeah, so there's, so the narrative is, is somewhat justified and, you know, on the surface it is correct, but you know, there's, there's little things that you start to learn, um, as you become more well-versed about how, how to structure your business or when to buy things, when to not in order to show on the tax return that it's a loss, but in all actuality, you're profiting. Okay. So it's really situational. Yes. Yeah, everything okay. everything with taxes is hundred percent situational. It, and that and that's what one thing I love about it is that you know you have people who you know come from the same family, same walk of life, and their tax situations are just completely different because of one small aspect change. You know, someone has a kid, you know, and the other sibling doesn't, their their tax returns are gonna look very different because of you know child tax credit, you know, child care tax credit. Um you know, all this extra stuff that they are, that the door is open to um, versus someone who's just, you know, married or not married and stuff like that. And we'll talk about child tax uh, credit, excuse me, in a moment. But one question that I definitely want to know is um, how can you help grow a business um, as an accountant? Yeah, that's... um, you know, that, that depends on, on, like I said, your accountant and your accountant relationship, how well you trust their judgment as well as um, their expertise. So a lot of, a lot of accountants are honestly kind of networking um, hubs of, Hey, I want to lower my taxes. And then the accountant's like, okay, well, I, I know this guy who does, you know, 401ks and he can do a, he can set up a 401k for your business. He's really good connects you and you can start saving for retirement. They know people who can do cost segregation studies, or they can even link you with other account or other, other clients of theirs of, you know, you tell them, Hey, I'm, I'm looking to buy a piece of property in this area of town. And they're like, Hey, I actually have a client who specializes in real estate in that area of town. Let me connect you two guys together. So you guys can, you know, talk and stuff like that. So that's a lot of what a, what a good accounting um, business growth is, as well as, you know, one thing I ask clients who come into the door, um, you know, brand new clients who, you know, want an accountant, I'm just like, what are, what are your, what are your aspirations for your, your business? What do you, what do you want to do? Um, you know, cause some people, may may have lost lofty aspirations. For example, people in real estate, they're like, I want to start doing residential until I, you know, build up um, my portfolio a little bit. And then I want to venture into commercial. Um, and then I want to stay in commercial. You know, then there's things to be like, okay, let's let's start chartering a path. Let's start um, make start making some decisions and and you know let me let me fill you in on some things that you should be on the lookout for. Versus someone who's just like, I just want to own, you know, a vacation house, you know, in Florida. And, you know, that's basically it. Then it's just like, okay, 
well, let me tell you some things about, you know, your vacation house. And for example, if I have a vacation house um, that I want to use as a rental, the rule is, I think it's 14 days. So I could go a vacation in that house for 14 days, but like, I can't do, I can't do 15. I can't do 16. I have to be at 14 and and then I can um, still keep it as a rental, but at the same time, use it as a vacation home. But when you start taking more days, like 30 days, then even if you rent it out for the rest of the year, you know, the IRS might disallow, okay, you can't claim the deductions, but you have to claim the income of, of that rental property or rental property, but they would reclassify it as a vacation home. So those are things that are, you know, situationally, an accountant can kind of color in, color in some of the details of things that you should expect or things that are probably going to happen that help you make a better decision looking forward to the future. That's good, man. Because that's definitely, like you said, uh, you mentioned something with the cost segregation. We mm-hmm. won't get into that too much because, I mean, I've heard about it and I, I've read it too and I've had a comment, you know, say that to me. And it's really something I think, because uh, we never did it, but I think it's something that really could save a lot of real estate owners a lot of money. Oh, yeah. Go in there and they, they kind of pick out certain things to get some more depreciation. And, mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, like you said, like there's just several ways that people can use, like you said, an account either networking or just, you know, of all aspects uh, to grow their business or, you know, whatnot. So Mm -hmm. I think it is very important to have, like you said, a good account that you mesh well with uh, because there's some bad ones out there. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) definitely. Definitely. On a return and send you that big old bill and you're like, man, and I owe you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, like, that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so speaking of, you know, kind of what we were just talking about, as far as businesses, uh, what would you say uh, would be different ways to kind of structure a business? Um, which, and do you do you think it's wise to address your account before you start a business to know which type of entity to structure it as and and so forth. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are definitely different benefits for different entity structures. Um, I don't know where this where this misconception comes, but I'll I'll have a call with a, a prospect or whatever, and I'm like, okay, what's what entity type are you? And they're like, I'm an LLC, and I'm like, that's that's not an entity type. So the okay. the entity type. So an LLC is essentially like a, a a limited liability company, which is what it stands for, but it is essentially like a legal, a legal type thing. So that kind of protects you against being sued and things like that. So LLCs don't really have any tax implications, um, whether or not you have an LLC, um, because the different types of entities um, are sole proprietorships, partnerships, S corps, and C corps. So the only one, I mean, I guess maybe a C Corp, I've never seen it, but like essentially all of those four entities could be LLCs. Um, so, so when you say LLC, it doesn't narrow things down. Um, 
because those are what's called tax entities. So a sole proprietorship is just one man wrecking crew, um, kind of just does their own thing with no, they can have employees if they you know want, but essentially they just do their own thing. Uh, well, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Yeah. But with the sole proprietorship, you said they can have employees or most of their employees or workers usually like contractors? So it can be, it can be either or. Um, I, I have a, a guy who is a sole proprietor um, for, he has a consulting business, um, mm-hmm. you know, and he's a sole proprietor and he has actual employees and contractors as well that are, you know, W-2 employees and 1099 employees. Um, so it can be a mixed bag, you know, it just depends on how big your sole proprietorship grows, but the more common sole proprietorships are, you know, your one-off things like, oh, I'm a handyman, I'm a, um, you know, I babysit or, you know, different things like that because the tax implications of being a successful sole proprietorship are so big that, um, the moment you start making profit, you want to switch to something else like an S corp is, is probably the best one. Um, does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so proprietorships and then there are partnerships, which obviously, um, you need to have two or more people in a partnership in order for it to be a legal partnership. And by the way, um, a sole proprietorship doesn't need an EIN. So if you just go around selling, I don't know, um, cell phones, you you just go around selling stuff. You don't need to apply for an EIN for that. Um, now if you obviously start growing and getting more successful, then there's things you need to start thinking about like sales tax and stuff like that. But, um, generally, you know, the sole proprietorships don't have an EIN that they've applied for. Partnerships are kind of the same thing. Although if you want to be a legit partnership, you have to have an EIN. Um, but, you know, partnership partnership and sole proprietorship are probably the two easiest forms of um, entity to make. And partnership, you know, two or more people. Um, partnerships are really, really good for real estate. I will say that. Um, That's gonna be my next question. Yeah, because of because of the way that they're the way that they function, you can put money in and take money out without really impacting your partners. I mean, obviously, you'll impact the business as a whole of you know taking money out of the business, but there is a. I kind of want to kind of trying to decide if I want to go into this because it's kind of it's really complicated. But there's this. Give us the gist of it. Yeah, just give us the (laughs) nod. Yeah, we're going to ask you because, you know, I'm about to ask you for sure. (laughs) (laughs) As soon as we get out of this, you know, we're going to be like, hey, divide. Yeah. So there's there's something called basis, which essentially reports how much value or or added value you have in the company, right? So if I contribute $1,000 to the company every year, you know, over 30 years, I'm going to have $30,000 invested. Right. That goes into my basis. So if, you know, for instance, Ramon, you contribute a thousand dollars and Kendra, you take out a thousand dollars every year. Ramon's basis is going to be higher in, in, than Kendra's because she's taking money out and Ramon's putting money in. So when 
when all the dust has settled at the end of 30 years, you know, Ramon's basis might be way up here and Kendra's might be way down here. Um, and it also affects how much in losses you can take, um, you know, in future years. Uh, but the biggest aspect, uh, which a lot of people don't know, is that if I, if I turn around and sell my business, right, let's say I have a promising law practice and I, you know, I, you know, take money out, which you're allowed to do as an owner of that practice. But I take money out, you know, every year um, and then I go to sell my business for a huge amount of money that is going to be taxable um, via capital gains. It's, it's almost as if you bought and sold a stock is kind of how it's treated. But if you don't have the basis, then that gain is going to be so taxable. Um, you know, I have clients who this is we take, take out all the money that they've made, you know, every year. Um, and so their bank account, you know, sits at like maybe like a hundred dollars at the end of each year because they take out everything that they make. But so they're not, whatever money they're making in basis, they're automatically taking out. So if they were to turn around and sell their business for a million dollars, they're going to have a million dollar capital gain. That's going to be taxable. Now in Ramon's situation, let's say he has $30,000 in basis um, and Kendra has zero. Then you guys turn around and sell your business for, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. Ramon is going to be taxed on, you know, you split that in half that $100,000 in half. 50, Ramon's going to be taxed on 20,000 because he has $30,000 in basis. Whereas Kendra is going to be taxed on the full 50 because she has $0 in basis. So there, there's a element of, you know, people putting money in and taking money out that, that also needs to be examined, especially when you involve your accountant and say, Hey, I got a really good offer for someone to buy my business. You know, I need to know what's going to happen. And then you can list that out and say, okay, with where your basis is now, you're looking at this much in capital gains, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so real estate is very, or 10, or almost at 1065s, which is the form number. So when you, when you, when you become an accountant for a while, you don't even use terms anymore. You use form numbers. <laughs> so it's just like, oh, you have an 8855 or, you know, it's just like, it's a whole, it's a whole different language. Um, but so yeah, for partnerships, it's very fluid of who can, you know, contribute what, you know, you can contribute actual real property. If you guys had a third partner who wanted to come in and say, I, I have this large piece of land in Kansas, you know, I want to contribute that into the partnership for ownership. And you guys are debate how much ownership percentage you want to give them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, S-Corps are, well, yeah, so a 1065 or a partnership is best for real estate. I will say that. Um, an S corp, um, which is an 1120 S is a slightly more complicated thing to get into. Um, but it's, it's mainly for your service industries. Well, I don't want to say actually service industries. Um, basically anything else that isn't real estate is kind of where uh, S corp comes into play. So if I do consulting, if I'm an accountant, if I, even sell things like physical things um, because of self-employment tax and stuff like that. You can avoid paying self-employment tax by being an S corp. Um, but like I said, it's a little more complicated. You have to apply for an EIN as a C corp, and then you have to file an election to become an S corp. Um, so it's a little, a few more steps, but an S corp is, is leaps and bounds way better than a C corp. 
and way better than a sole proprietorship. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's way too complicated. Yeah. So if anyone has any, you know, any questions about um, sole proprietorships and S-Corps, C-Corps and all that, they should probably talk to their accountant mm -hmm. or a tax attorney or somebody. Yeah, because <laughs> that that is like that is a is a very difficult decision of what entity to use when you're starting a business mm -hmm. because, you know, you already have the complications of find out, you know, finding out what the business is going to be and how you're going to be creative and all the marketing and all this and that. And then you yep. have to worry about, okay, what entity am I going to use? Am I going to be an LLC? And like you said, I didn't know that about an LLC, that it wasn't yep. an actual entity, but it's like a, a, a sub Something yeah, like a, a legal protection, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it 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 just becomes way too complicated. But um, you mentioned something as you were explaining the entities. Mm -hmm. What are the tax obligations for businesses? So if you do have one of these um, entity flow through entities, which is a partnership or an S corp, those have their own separate tax returns. Right. Okay. And then, like I said, in the beginning, they produce a K-1 and then that goes on your personal tax return. So the, the main obligation for a business, a flow through entity is a um, is a bit is its own separate business return that is due March 15th. And that also can be extended to September 15th. Um, now, there are extra taxes or extra obligations that can fall under that, depending on what type of work you do. For example, if you sell things, you know, like actual like retail goods, then, you know, you might have a sales tax obligation, which is something that's probably needs to be done monthly. Um, if you have employees, you might have a payroll obligation, or if you have independent contractors, you may have a 1099 obligation. So um, those are the, the large, um, the larger, uh, aspects of, you know, obligations overall that you, that you would have. You don't, you don't always just have your business tax return and you don't always just have your personal tax return. You always need to, like I said, involve your accountant, let them know, you know, not exactly what you're doing, but let them know what you are doing so that they can make sure you're compliant. Um, Cause nothing's worse than, you know, finding out that you've, been selling stuff and collecting pay or sales tax, but haven't actually filed a sales tax return. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's because they don't know, you know, they just know that you collect sales tax, but they, you know, don't put two and two together that you're actually supposed to collect that and then send that off. So, um, you know, because in, 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 in sometimes it's because. <laughs> And it's and it's it's more times than not because of whatever pay, payment processor they're using is um, automatically collecting that sales tax. Now it depends if, like Amazon, for instance, Amazon will collect your sales tax for you and then pay it on your behalf, so you don't even have to deal with it. But I mean, I don't know what Square does. I assume Square would do something similar. But if Square didn't, then you would need to know that because if you don't know. Square is de depositing that sales tax into your bank account 
every whatever, and you're just, you know, you're just keeping that money rather than paying it to the state of wherever that you should be paying it to. Mm. So that's, so that's a, a, a good conversation to have. Um, but, you know, if you do, if you do professional services, it depends state to state, obviously. But if I, you know, go do consulting in Alabama or whatever, you know, am I supposed to charge sales tax for that? You know, you would have to try to figure that out. But, um, but definitely if you sell tangible things, then you might want to look into, should you be filing sales tax returns? Uh-huh. Well, you're going to have a lot of people sweating right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's that about 5,000 sales tax. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, this is my favorite part. Uh, what are some home office and business expenses that someone can deduct? Yeah. <laughs> now, hold up. Now, before you answer this, we got to make it clear because this is a big thing, right? Because like uh-huh. I said, 2020 was probably the year of entrepreneurs, right? Mm-hmm. People were just trying to get in. Like, I got to do something. I got mm-hmm. to start selling cakes. I got to start yeah. something legal, right? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So this is the thing. I think that a lot of people, and, and when they have bad accountants, that, that's why you know we talk about it, putting the stress, uh, the emphasis on having a good account because they're going to be able to tell you what you can write off and how you can write it off, right? Mm-hmm. So when you answer this question, try if you can't answer it based off of what type of uh, company somebody has. So if it's something that they do in their house mm-hmm. on the road, but they use something in their house, see if you can, if you can kind of di- differentiate that for us. And like you said, I use myself as an example. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna raise my hand. Okay, so as a realtor. Mm-hmm. And I do work from home, mm-hmm. right? I yep. do use my car <laughs> yep. pretty often. How would this um, help other people that are, you know, like me? Mm-hmm. 99 contract. Yeah. yeah. So I will throw the disclaimer in there again, because this is a, this is a, a very volatile topic. You know, people will go to someone and say, Hey, I heard I could do this, this, and that. You know, this person told me to do it. Um, So I will say this is not, um, you know, actual advice that I believe that people should follow. This is just kind of offering the educational piece behind it to start that dialogue with your accountant and, you know, possibly save some tax dollars. Uh, With that said, so for a realtor, um, well, first I'll start with the easiest one. If you are just an employee, obviously COVID has limited a lot of people to working remotely from home. If you just make a W-2, you don't own your business or own a business or anything like that, then there's there's nothing there for you, at least not anymore. Um, I, think, I think it was the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that removed unreimbursed employee expenses, which was a deduction you know, for a lot of people, especially people who were like salesmen, um, Mm -hmm. you know, they had those for, you know, things that they were doing on the road and stuff like that for the business that was highly commission based. Um, you know, that was a huge deduction for some of them, but that got removed. So that's, that's automatically, um, if you're an individual person who just makes a W2, there's nothing, there's nothing really you can do in regards to that. 
Um, now, however, for a realtor, that depends on, like you said, your entity type. So mm -hmm. um, you could be a sole proprietor realtor and add your home office as a business asset. So what you would do is you would take the square footage of your office and then you would take the square footage of your house and you know that and you divide the office by the house and that would give you a percentage, right? That'll give you your business use percentage. And then you multiply that percentage by every expense, you know, in your house, you know, the, like utilities, um, real estate taxes, mortgage interest, all that stuff. Um, and then that will spit out a business, you know, home office expense. Um, but there's also what's called the simplified method, which, you know, is probably easier and, and less audit risk, probably, um, is how I, how I would say it. But essentially, the IRS just gives you, okay, take your office square footage and multiply it by $5 per square foot. And then that's going to be your deduction. Um, so that obviously alleviates a lot of paperwork, a lot of calculating and, you know, totaling up, going through your um, utilities and totaling up what you paid each month. You can just take the $5 per square foot and call it good. Um, now, if you have a flow through entity, it gets a little more complicated because as a sole proprietor, you know, your business and you are basically intertwined. Like mm -hmm. it's not its own separate entity. Now, when you have a flow through entity, those are going to be two distinct separate entities. Um, and when that happens, it's harder to capitalize personal assets underneath the business um, for that. For that, and, and not necessarily, you're not capitalizing your full house, but putting your house on your business return definitely throws up some red flags. Um, mm -hmm. So what a lot of a lot of people I've seen, I've never personally done this, but what I've seen in in practice um, is that people set up an agreement uh, because you are two legally two separate entities. You set up an agreement as the business written to you as the person and say, hey, I'm going to be renting this space in your house for, you know, whatever. Here's the here are the terms of the agreement you're going to pay or, you know really not really any it's very it's very informal because obviously you're writing an agreement from yourself to yourself but essentially they're writing an agreement saying that they're renting this space in the home and then they claim the home office deduction on the business return and then on their personal return and this is where this is where it's actually very interesting is they claim the income on the personal return and then offset it with the business expenses. So it's it's a little it's a little complicated, but essentially, let's say let's say the business use percentage of my house is five hundred dollars, right? My business reports the five hundred dollars worth of expenses, right? Because they pay they quote unquote paid that to me personally, oh. and then I report that five hundred dollars of income, but then I also offset it with the five hundred dollars of expenses that I paid as the person for those utilities and stuff, therefore netting it to zero, but also getting the business a $500 deduction. See, now I want to point this out because this is very important because these are things that a lot of us didn't know, right? Mm -hmm. This is how people get mad when 
they look at Trump's tax returns, they like this man only paid seven hundred dollars and people bad. Yeah. Instead of trying to figure out how he did it, right? Because this is not something that's illegal. Mm-hmm. Very legal. It's just you have to know the right accountant to show yeah. you how to do it. Right. Instead of people getting mad, they should be trying to figure out yeah. okay, how is he doing something like this. Because I've know? heard of that, like you said, where yeah. uh like you know, Jeff Bezos and all uh, Zuckerberg. Well, they'll set up, like you said, set up an entity, and they might set up another entity, right? Mm-hmm. Say, this entity or this business charge this business mm-hmm. business, and then by the time it gets to me, it looks like I didn't make anything. And they yeah. own both companies. Yeah, like you said, they own all these companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, passing, like you said, the income through or the expenses through each company, mm-hmm. the income through each company, and then by the time it gets to me. Then I'm writing all this these expenses off on these business on me. So like you said, when it looks like I didn't make anything, yeah, all this money. And so, you know, I think that's very monumental that people <laughs> understand that because I mean, dude, it's like the game is out here, man. We gotta know this because that's like you said, it's not illegal. And you get mad at Trump, who's a billionaire, who pay you pay more taxes than him. Right. Yeah, <laughs> him and taxes. other people like him. It's not just him, you know, yeah. that takes yeah, advantage no. of these tax opportunities. It's also people that have his access to wealth mm-hmm. because they have a team of accountants and lawyers that will say, "Hey, you know what? Do this. Mm-hmm. They'll, you know, bring you money or revenue or whatever at the end of the at the end of the year, right? Um, and you know." Also, for the longevity of their business investments and companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, since we're since we're already on the topic, I will say that there was one thing that you know a lot of people were in uproar about that. You know, like as an accountant, I was looking at it. It was just like, yeah, I mean, that's 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 standard. So like, there was there was I can't remember where this house was, but he had like a multi million dollar mansion somewhere. Um, you know that he was reporting as an investment property, right? Mm-hmm. And it's been in his family for like generations or whatever. And um, and people were mad that he was depreciating, you know, what seemed like a personal asset. But it's like, well, if he doesn't live in it and he just like holds it, you know, he could turn around and sell it at any point. He could do whatever he wanted to it. As long as he doesn't live in it, technically it is an investment property. Mm-hmm. So then it can be depreciated. You know, now there's obviously multiple layers to that, you know, where stuff was coming out that actually, you know, when you go through social media and stuff like that, you see him and his family in that house, like all the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's, that's obviously where the controversy comes in, but, you know, for someone who, you know, say is a millionaire and they have a property in Bel Air that they just don't live in, that they just have it. And maybe they do go vacation in it for that 14 days, like we talked about, you know, they could depreciate that, um, as an investment property because of the fact that they don't live in it, you know, and there's obviously rules and things like that boxes you need to check, but, you know, as a millionaire, you probably have a a team of accountants that are making sure those boxes are checked of you're not doing this. You are doing that um, to make sure that all the, all the rules are being hit. And then, then, you know, there's going to be some legislation put out like, Oh, like (laughs) one thing I find hilarious um, is, is, some people just don't know that tax laws are things 
are written so specifically because people have done it. So, so it's just like, it's, um, it's really written for them because the, the, some of these people, politicians, they own businesses and, yeah. and property. So they know what they're doing. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, for example, um, you get a deduction for, you know, a, a $19,000 deduction for maxing out your 401k. Right. Um, there's a reason for that. The government wants you to save for retirement. Um, you know, they institute these bills and these legislative changes and tax credits and things like that because they want you to do a specific thing, like contribute to retirement. Or, you know, when there was the um, first time home buyers credit, they wanted people to start buying homes. Um, mm -hmm. So there are things out there that are, you know, specifically made for people to take advantage of. Um, and, you know, there are, there are rules out there of things that you can't do because someone has done it successfully and they're like, okay, yeah, we can't, we can't let people do that because that, that's, that's just not okay. Um, so. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. There is some, but not. <laughs> yeah, it's like, the, it's like the sign at the public pool. It's like, don't dive into the, the jacuzzi. Why is that sign there? Because someone went and did it and, mm -hmm. you know became an issue. So now you got to put a sign up there for it. People going to always find a way to do something. That that's going to make them change the law. Like, oh, you can't, you can't, you can't have everybody do that. <laughs> right. So um, with COVID and everything, of course, a lot of, I'm sure you see a lot of different changes in mm -hmm. your profession. Can you explain the tax deduction on unemployment income for 2020? Because pretty much most of America was receiving unemployment, you know, due to COVID. Right. So, yeah, this was something that actually was just passed not too long ago. We had we had heard rumors about it. And this is kind of like tax law in a nutshell of like, while other people are hearing rumors about like celebrities and stuff like that, things that are going on, like tax accounts are hearing rumors of, did you hear that this new credit might be coming out? Like this is the kind of whispers we are listening to, but yeah. So there was a, those are the kind of rumors we want to hear. We don't care about them. We care yeah. about the money. I'm going to have to pay, you know what I'm saying? So they, right, to get some gossip, get some yeah. office gossip. So, so there was a, um, there's a, a bill that Biden had just signed, like 20, the 20 something, I can't remember, I think it was like the 21st of this month, where um, it's excluding 10,200 of your dollars of unemployment. So if you made you know, $9,000 of unemployment, you can exclude that full 9,000 and not pay taxes on it. But if you made, you know, above 10,000, then you get to exclude 10,000 of it and then pay the tax on the difference of it. Um, which is, which is very helpful. Cause obviously, like you said, with COVID, a lot of people got laid off and the unemployment benefits were getting, you know, bumped up and, you know, a lot of people were, you know, being compensated for being laid off. Uh, so that. Definitely. I mean, obviously it came way late. That's this it's March. People have already filed their tax returns and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So having to deal with, and some people might not have been impacted by it, just depending on their tax situation, they might not have been taxed on it anyways. But if you did make a lot of money before, you know, being laid off and stuff like that, then that's something you want to definitely take a look at and possibly amend your tax return. Um, there's been 
you know, rules within the past week of how to handle this situation. So it's constantly developing. But yeah, that unemployment of writing off 10,000, say one client um, who I was preparing the return for, I was, you know, working on their return when that rumor had essentially got announced. And like their return was basically done. But I was like, I'm not filing it until I figure out, you know, if this thing is going to happen. Because if it is, then it's going to help them. But I would rather hold off and file the return after I know for sure, rather than file now and then amend and then, you know, have to file again. So, yeah. yep. so there is a lot of, a lot of holding for some clients because you just really don't know how stuff's going to shake out. So you got to wait until that legislation gets pushed through. And fortunately it was. So, man, that's good. Cause man, I'm telling you, you're going to have some people like, woo. Yeah. Man, I was going, Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it does. I mean, it helps the common man, mm-hmm. common folk, you know, so to speak. Um, because you know, everybody, COVID just didn't hit, you know, a certain tax bracket of people. It affected mm-hmm. everyone, you know. Right. <clears throat> and um, this is one that Ramon like is so excited about. <laughs> Explain the child tax deduction for your Twelve thousand five hundred dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what? I, the crazy he, thing is, he wants child labor laws. <laughs> hey, listen, they be child labor people to come after us. Hey, yeah. listen, they be getting put to work right now. But no, <laughs> the, the reason why I, I because I so one thing is I heard a while ago. Um, I had a conversation with somebody and. They kind of mentioned about, uh, you know, we got on the subject of credit, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people, you know, growing up, you know, you had bad credit before you was 18 because your parents put your name on some stuff and they paid the <laughs> Right. You know? So, you know, some people was unfortunate, you know. And I was like, man, that's crazy. That That's, that's jacked up to do that to your child. But then it, it came about where, you know, I heard that some people would say, hey, when your kid is young, add them on a couple credit cards that you own, right? Mm-hmm. Young. So when they get, you know, of age, 18, 21, whatever, they're going to have good credit and it's going to be established for so many years, right? Mm-hmm. Because on your credit report, the length of history actually holds a lot of weight. Right. So, you know, um, then I, it kind of turned into when you talk about businesses, right? Mm-hmm. I got to a friend the other day, he owns a business and I said, you know, hey, I just found this out. You can have your daughter work for you as an employee. Um, I think if she's between seven to seventeen or eighteen, I might be wrong. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you can have her as an employee, and you can pay her tax free, mm-hmm. and you can use you can deduct that on your taxes at the end of the year, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Whoa, that's so cool!" And it's like up to I think twelve thousand five hundred for the year. Yep. So like there's a lot of people out here with businesses and don't know that. You mm-hmm. with idle time. You missing yeah. out some productions, <laughs> you know what I mean? And your kid, that's an ample way to get your kids into entrepreneurship as well, right? Mm-hmm. You teaching them and letting them see what you do and you actually can pay them. So you showing mm-hmm. them entrepreneurship, you know, you having them dealing with finances, with credit, they're learning all this stuff on the job that you created. Mm-hmm. So, can you kind of just go into that a little bit and how that helps business owners who, who do have kids? Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, Ramon, you're absolutely right. It is definitely a, I mean, when you, when you like the taxes is like the X's and O's of the whole situation. Right. But when you start to think about like real life applications of your teaching your kids, you know, how they're getting a paycheck. Cause you know, they could go and blow that whole paycheck in like one day and then you're like, okay, well, you're going to have to wait two weeks for your next one. So, you know, you're instilling in them at an early age of saving and budgeting and things like that. Um, but while you're still in like a controlled environment, cause you don't want them to be 18 and then, you know, blow all their money. And now they don't have money for rent. You want to do it at a younger age so that they're not put in a situation like that to where it's like life or death, essentially, or homelessness versus not homelessness. You want to have them get those tools on early. So there is, and this is, this is more of a a language thing. Um, So there's kind of what I like to think of as three different types of things. So there's strategies, deductions, and credits, right? Um, So strategies are things that you can do you know, that obviously lead to bigger deductions. Um, they're not like a deduction themselves. Like if you were to Google, you know, child tax credit or child payment tax credit or whatever, you're just going to get, you know, brought to the child tax credit of like $2,000. You know, so people, if they're Googling what you're saying, they're probably just going to be like, well, that's not, I don't. So this is more of a strategy that a lot of business owners use, like Ramon had said. So what people do is they have, their child, children or child work for them because their children are separate tax filing entities, right? They have their own social security numbers. Therefore, they have their own tax returns. Now, if you have a person who's, you know, 16 and works in the summer, you know, makes a couple thousand dollars, you know, they might not, it might not even be worth filing a tax return, especially if they don't have any withholding, um, then you know, it's probably not worth it. But if you have, you know, your own kids and you want to put them on payroll, you could pay, yeah, 12,000. I think the deduction is 12,400. I'm not mistaken. Um, But so, so yeah, so essentially what that is, the 12,400 is the standard deduction for your personal tax return, right? So each individual person you know, as long as you have a social security number, you're entitled to this $12,400 deduction. You could be a business owner, an employee, or someone who's unemployed. You're going to get this deduction. Now, it's not going to generate like a refund for you per se, but it's going to wipe out $12,400 worth of your income. If this number changes every year, um, it can go up, could go down, but you just have to know that. But so, so what Ramon is talking about is parents pay their kids up to that amount because like I said, it's going to wipe out your income. So you're going to make 12,400, but on the tax return, it's going to report that you made zero because you're going to wipe out all of that income and thus not have any taxes. Um, So a lot of my clients, um, for example, they have kids who are in college, you know, and they're just like, Oh, I, you know, send him money for, you know, books and college expenses and stuff like that. It's just like, well, just, you know, put him on payroll. He's here in town. Just have him come work for you, you know, on the weekends or something like that. And it doesn't have to be anything super crazy, you know, like they don't have to be out there consulting with you. You know, they can do administrative stuff like filing and cleaning and shredding and things like that, which is why I don't, I don't remember the ages off the top of my head. Um, but um, 
but yeah, for, for smaller, younger people who are like 13, you don't want to trust them to answer phones. Um, <laughs> but you know, you can have them do those menial things and put them on payroll and pay them, you know, if you're going to have to pay for stuff for them anyways, like, you know, extracurricular activities and allowances and stuff like that, why not add them to your business payroll, teach them a little responsibility while at the same time being able to write off that 12,000, um, you know, from the business side, as well as the payroll taxes that are in addition to that. So it's kind of like a, like a, it checks every box of everything that you want. So why not do it? Man, that's big. Cause I know a lot of people who have businesses, but their kids don't work for them. Mm-hmm. Some that do work for them. But like you said, with a lot of people that are starting a business, if your kid is of an age where there's something that they can do, like you said, mm-hmm. it's not meaningful, but it can be something that you like, all right, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Put these papers together. You know, that's simple. Mm-hmm. Pay you for, you know. Um, I think that's big, man. Because it teaches, you know, you you paying your kid, but you're also teaching them a lot, you know. Yep. Uh, when they get out to this real world, you know, you don't want you don't really want them working for nobody else. Right. Mm-hmm. It also teaches them to be competitive because a lot of kids have to compete with the Byron um, Trumps of the world, you know, he's a teenager, he's going to grow up and, you know, he's going to have a lot of things to, you know, hand it to him like his mm-hmm. kid. So this teaches your kids while you're earning some sort of, you know, credit for your, right. business, um, you know, to be responsible and, and, you know, to how to acquire wealth. I mean, what's, right. what's better than that? Yeah. And especially um, for, for example, I mean, you're not able to contribute to a 401k until you're like 18 or 19, I want to mm-hmm. say. But say you have a kid in college who, you know, you you pay them um, to come work for you. You could also set up a retirement account for them, like a 401k with a, with a company match. And so, you know, you could, you know, maybe pay your kid, you know, 12000 um, is the deduction of the deduction for 401k contributions is like 19. Obviously you have to really love your kid to, <laughs> to do this, but, um, but you would pay them essentially a salary of like $25,000, um, you know, max out their 401ks, which is for their retirement. They can't touch it till they're 60 something anyways. Mm-hmm. So you set them up in terms of before they've even left college, they already have a maxed out 401k um for the future as well as money in their pocket that's not taxable so you just have you know all of these extra um and and that's just like the beginning um you know for example like uh and this is for what a lot of businesses um out there like escort for instance um when you have medical expenses those aren't fully deductible in the sense of if I pay $100 in medical expenses, likely $0 of that is gonna be deductible. You have to spend a certain amount and then you can start deducting anything above that amount. So what a lot of people you know, do is they gather up their medical expenses and give them to their accountant, but it's, you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't result in anything. Uh, so if you have a business, you can set up a health reimbursement account, um, which, you know, the business reimburses you for your personal medical expenses and the business takes that deduction in full because they paid it to you and it's not taxable. So there's little nuances like that where you just change, just tweak a little something, you know, just change one aspect of the situation and boom, it becomes fully deductible. Um, 
So things like that for if you have your employee or your kid as an employee, you can set up a health reimbursement account for, you know, if they have a, if they have to have a surgery done for an athletic incident or, you know, just stuff like that where ordinary parent stuff can now become deductible if it's set up in the proper way. If it's done, you know, all the boxes are checked and everything is done up to code. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. A lot of yeah. information, man. I hope people really take heed to that. <laughs> man. I know. I mean, when we think about wealth, you think about what you're going to just give to your children. You know, here, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm dead and gone and this is what, you know, I want you to have, you know, the, the blood, sweat and tears of my legacy. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, to have it explained like that, it, it just puts everything into perspective, how wealth was, you know, kept from black people because we don't, we didn't know any of this. Like right. you know, we have, you know, people like yourself now and, you know, and others to provide us with this information, you know, because you're so educated in, you know, that field. Mm-hmm. That, um, I don't understand how people can go, you know, owing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the IRS or, you know, not being able to take advantage of so many tax advantages, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're out there. They're, you know, they're, here, but I think what happens is a lot of people get scared mm-hmm. or and they don't want to speak to a professional like yourself because they automatically think, oh, he's going to judge me or he's going to think, you know, he's he's going to think I'm like this or like that. But mm-hmm. you're scared. You got to go out there and, and get it done. I know I was embarrassed, you know, <laughs> to, hand, to hand some of our tax information over to, you know, to my baby brother. But it has to be done. You know, you yeah. got to be responsible. We're adults. We got to do it. Yeah, definitely. It's in, in, I mean, to that point, it's like you guys, right? It's like you guys, I mean, uh, Ramon, I don't know. I, I mean, I've, you know, met your dad, love your dad, but I don't know if he was all into real estate and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, so it's like for you guys, you guys are going into this, you know, not experiencing firsthand you know, what it's like to have a parent who's investing in real estate, flipping properties and stuff like that. You guys are kind of learning from others and then applying it to your own personal situations. Um, and that's, you know, kind of, kind of what we have to do as um, black people in this country of, you know, you're, you're self-made um, and then with the hopes that one day you can pass that off to, you know, family or, you know, your children that the lessons that you have learned um, while keeping them hungry for to, to become that self-made individual, but you also want to give them a better life than what you have lived. Absolutely. Um, definitely. definitely. So. And, uh, I think with that too, one tool that has been used to transfer wealth in this country that a lot of us didn't know about, and we always wonder why we see kids as coming up and it just looks like they, they were just born with money. Mm-hmm. Um, is the 1031 exchange. And we yep. talked about that before. We, we've done it before. And when you really understand how powerful that is, um, can you kind of just give us a little snippet on, on that and how that works um, and what's kind of the, the tax advantages of using a 1031? Yeah. So the advantages of a 1031 and, and the most basic 
sense of the word is you you push off a gain on a property, right? So if I sell, if I were to sell a piece of property, um, then I would be taxed on that gain. But if you 1031 exchange it, then you know that just pushes it down the road. And so what a 1031 exchange is, is I take a piece of property and, and really now it's only real estate before it used to be like when you would go and trade in your vehicle, that was technically a 1031 exchange um, from the business side, but they um, decided to lessen the paperwork. So now when you trade in your vehicle, it's actually like a sale and you report that gain on the sale. Um, so now really only 1031 exchange uh, is in reference to real property. So your land, your buildings, all that stuff. So let's say you have a, a piece of property that you want to trade for another piece of property. In, in essence, you're just trading it. Um, so what you would do is you find a broker who specializes in 1031 exchanges. And I will say that that is very important because I've never seen a successful 1031 exchange that didn't have an intermediary. You know, you can't just do this yourself. You need a third party who knows what they're doing in order to do this successfully. Because one wrong move, that gain becomes taxable. And what's, so, that, what's, that, what's that gain called? Or capital that, gain. That, that, no, the, the, when you say when you make that one, one wrong move, do you know what that is called when, when you have to pay the capital gains tax on that? No. <laughs> oh, yes, here's why. Hey, I was asking, we, either one of y'all. Oh. <laughs> so, we, so we could, you know, educate these people. It's called a boot. And I'm sure you probably yep. know. Maybe mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Yeah, yep, so yeah. What Ramon is yeah talking about is is boot, which is kind of like a val- value added um, into the deal, such as like cash and stuff like that. Um, but if you do it improperly, then the whole transaction itself can be classified as like essentially boot if you're using like 1031 exchange logic in the situation. Um, but yeah, so you always need an intermediary who knows who's done a 1031 exchange because effectively the money can't touch your hands um, because the moment it touches your hands, it becomes taxable. So that's why you need an intermediary. Um, So a lot of people, for instance, if I have a piece of land in Nebraska, right. And I want to, I want to trade it for, you know, a rental property in Kansas, you know, I can 1031 exchange that land, which is essentially you sell it and then you, immediately reinvest those funds into buying this other property is logistically how it all works out. But um, so, like I said, that's another little nuance of, you know, you could, you could sell that land and then go buy that property in Kansas, but then that becomes taxable. But if you add that intermediary who knows what they're doing in 1031 exchange it, you buy that property or you sell this property, buy it. And now it's not taxable. So those little things, um, and so that's very helpful for for when you have um, one highly appreciated property. Like, for example, land in Nebraska is like skyrocketing. It's a seller's market. People, you know, in western Nebraska, northern Nebraska, that was all previously like farmland and uncultivated land now is becoming suburbia and expanding. So you know, that land in, in essence is going to be way more valuable now than it was before. Um, we had a, we had a client, it wasn't my client, but I heard a story where someone owned land that 
um, can't remember if it was Google or Facebook wanted to build a data center on here in Nebraska. And so they, you know, um, the Google or Facebook was like, we want to buy it for, you know, this much, you know, a way above market value. And the people were just like, well, I mean, we want to, but the taxes on that are going to be like terrible because of the fact that it's just going to, you know, it's, they're paying so much more than it was bought for, you know, 60 years ago. Like we've had this in our family for 60 years and it was bought for pennies on the dollar. Now you're selling me bars of gold for it. Um, so then, you know, you bring the accountant into it and then they're like, okay, you need to, you know, 1031 exchange it for a, you know, piece of property or something that way you can save some tax dollars, um, you know, convert that piece of land into something actually useful for you um, that you, you know, can build upon, build a future on. Um, and, you know, they're very happy about that of not having to pay that gain or the tax on that gain. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the many instances where a 1031 exchange is so much more valuable than just selling your property outright. Yeah. And then once you uh, to, to add to that, I know because basically people some people get a misconstrued. They say, oh, well, you, you do tax free. You don't owe no taxes. Right. You are essentially doing or deferring the taxes. So mm-hmm. basically giving the IRS or IOU. You're like, I ain't gonna pay you right now. I'm gonna pay you later. But I'll pay you, you know, later on. And so yep. you're doing it. And that's what I think a lot of these families have done over the generations is they bought these properties, held them, and then when they die, mm-hmm. so instead of all that, that, that tax that they defer being come due, when they pass it on to their heirs, they essentially get wiped zero. Yep. Now their kids inherit all that property and none of that debt. Ooh, that's yeah. amazing. You know, yeah. Don't you wish we grew up like that? Yeah. <laughs> so, it's so big that people don't really understand that there is more to it. In this buying property, you also, you know, you, you buying for the next generation and you don't yeah. want them to come in this world with all that debt. You're setting them up. So, I, I man, I think you explained that great and uh, I love this interview. Man, we have so much can you believe that this is like the first interview where I didn't spend a lot of time talking yeah. <laughs> because I'm learning I'm like you know this <laughs> I'm yeah. receiving this information it, it's, yeah. you know, it's important that you know that we know that because I ain't know none of this so I just knew you had yeah. to pay taxes every year and Sometimes, you know, I'd claim zero or exam yeah. or whatever, you know. Hey, you about to lose a sister. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I'm really glad you actually brought up that, um, you know, that, that bringing up after you die. Um, yeah, that's called a step up in basis. And, you know, we talked about business basis or whatever. But so if I, and this happens all the time where a piece of property is in the family, um, you know, and, and, you know, the family really doesn't have a use for it after, you know, so-and-so dies, they sell it. You know, if the person who the parent who died, you know, bought it for $30,000, you know, back in the thirties or the fifties or something like that. And now it's worth, you know, $300,000 just because of the market or whatever, the area of town that it's in and stuff like that. You know, ordinarily, if that person tries to sell it before they die, 
they uh, are going to pay a huge tax on it. So what happens is that people hold on to it, put it in their will. And then when they die, it transfers to their kids. And now that the kids no longer have a $30,000 basis of what it was paid for, they got a $300,000 basis. It just instantly jumps from one to the other, which is called you know a step up to fair market value. So at the date of death, whatever the fair market value of it is, is now the kid's basis. So they could sell that house for $300,000 and pay zero tax on it, you know, and that's obviously very powerful when you have a lot of property or, you know, that Google data center, you know, someone wants to come and buy that land that your grandpa, you know, bought way back, way back when. So, you know, it's just like that, that preservation of wealth for the future, um, you know, people like for the instant gratification of, you know, I want, I want it now. I want it. I want it. I want it. I mean, sometimes you just have to take a look into the future of, you know, obviously it's not going to benefit you to, for that step up in basis of when you die. But, you know, if you want your kids to, you know, get a huge influx of cash after you die, in addition to your life insurance or whatever else money that they're going to get, you, you're setting them up in a great position. Um, to, to succeed and to, to build a better life for themselves. Um, so rather than just giving them money, you, you, ha- you have a setup to further their um, economic goals, really. Well said. Yeah, well said. And that just kind of goes into our last question. Um, what does wealth mean to you? That's, that's a great question. Um, uh oh, we're gonna get the accounting technical yeah. term. <laughs> so no, I get a dictionary no. out. This is, this, is me, this is me taking my accounting hat off. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> wealth, wealth to me is fulfillment in life, right? So for me, I, I obviously want to make a living, right? And I want to have enough money to go do the things that I want. Um, but if if I have to, um, you know, work myself to the bone to to do certain things, for example, I want to one day travel travel to Europe, right? Um, you know, if I if I have to become a millionaire to travel to Europe, I work to become a millionaire, and then I want to travel to Europe. That's not fulfilling to me. I want to do you know have a life, but at the same time, have enough money to go and do things. So my bank account probably doesn't seem like I'm wealthy, but at the end of the day, when I have kids and things like that, I don't want to look back and feel like I haven't done certain things in life because of, you know, monetary limitations, you know? So that's what being wealthy is to me is just having full fulfillment in my life of I've done you know, looking back, I've done what I've wanted to do and no one's, no one's been able to stop me. And, you know, I might not have, you know, six zeros in the bank account, but, you know, I've had, I've had a wealth of life experiences. And to me, that's what it means to be wealthy. Yeah. Wealth is not always about monetary value. You know, like you said, having the, you know, the money in the bank, wealth means different things to different people. And that is the importance of, you know, getting everyone's opinion about what wealth means to them. Mm-hmm. 
And that's that's so fulfilling and it's so sweet, just like my little brother. Put those hey man, we appreciate the interview, man. This was definitely really do. I was waiting on it because you know it was monumental. I hope everybody that's watching this and that don't see this that they take a lot from it because there's a lot of information here for not just black people, I mean everybody. Everybody. But, um, yeah. but man, you know. I applaud you for even being an accountant, you know, taking yeah. patience, <laughs> you know, that a lot of us don't have. So yeah. uh, before we go, please tell everybody, you know, how they can reach you. And uh, we'll put all that in the notes when we post this. Uh, yeah. Head out. Yeah. So best way to reach me, um, you know, I don't really do the whole social media thing anymore. You know, Facebook. Not um, yet. You don't get on yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, when I when I become a social media sensation, then maybe I'll hop back on it, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the best way to reach me is by far email, especially this time of year with work being so hectic. Um, and my email is just my first and last name, Devon Billups, at gmail.com. Pretty, pretty simple. Um, yeah, and I'm more than happy, you know, to, I'm, I'm not really doing my own thing right now, um, just with the fact of, it's 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 always it's always great to have a support system, you know. Um, you know, venturing out into your own can be scary. Which I don't know. I don't know if I want to do one day. Maybe, maybe not. Right now, I'm just absorbing everything like a sponge, you know, because I'm working with people who have, you know, close to a hundred years of tax experience, you know. So I'm just, you know, looking at each situation that a client has and just absorbing absorbing what they're doing and learning from them. Um, and then once you venture out to your own, you might not have that. So, uh, so yeah, best way to reach me is by email. Um, and you know, if you are interested in becoming a client or interested in some extra, extra off season work or consulting or things like that, you know, you can always reach me and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. I'm always open to you know, like Kendra, Kendra loves talking. It's, it runs in the blood. I, I enjoy <laughs> talking to people. It's, it's what I do. Yes. I'm so proud of you, little brother. And thank you so much, our audience, for tuning in to the Slow Wealth Podcast and our streams. Um, I am Kendra. And this is Simone. And, and so again, we have Devon. Yeah. You can reach him at devonbillows at gmail.com. We are on all uh, podcast platforms and we're on Facebook. You can email us at invest at slowwealth.com. That's invest, I N V E S T, at slowwealth, S L O E W E A L T H.com. Facebook and YouTube. Oh, yes, and YouTube because we have the YouTube channel. We just need to kind of gotta get more savvy. By the time you guys see this, we're gonna be on YouTube. So hey man, appreciate the interview. And uh we hope everybody have a blessed day and love you. Love y'all. 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 Love y'all.